give a quick little update. Um, we've been doing this, letting people know about our finances, and partly just there was concern about finances in the midst of COVID, like what's going to happen, and rightly so. Uh, but what, we, what we're seeing is God is providing, and He's providing in a, a really uh, significant way. And uh, the target that we were hoping to hit in terms of just inside giving, we're right at that target. Uh, in terms of, fun, of staff fundraising, right at that target. And then you see that middle uh, category there of just external giving, which is kind of general giving that comes from the outside where people say, I want to bless Mercy House. Oftentimes it's alumni, um, sometimes it's parents of college students, all kinds of different people that give that just in general, like, we want to bless you. And this last week, we had someone give us $100,000. And uh, it was from an alumni that had done undergrad and master's and Ph.D. here, served in a number of ways, and uh, loves Mercy House. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't recruit that money. We didn't ask for that money. Um, he just, in generosity, uh, gave that money. And uh, so we're just, we're just seeing God provide uh, in really miraculous ways. And why does it matter, right? Why, why? Okay, church got money. Who cares? Um, it funds ministry. And as I was just kind of reflecting on this report and thinking about just different things, different experiences I've had even over the last week or so, um, even this morning, I was talking to V. I'm like, how many kids were on the Zoom uh, call for the, the, the MH kids? 29 kids that were on that call, that were listening to the gospel, that are being taught by a whole faculty of both college students and, and others who are teaching the kids about Jesus. And that's happening week in and week out. And V has done an incredible job of, of putting that together. I got an email from uh, a parent uh, of a, a Mercy House member who was not a Christian just a few months ago, but their, their daughter, who's a member here, was sharing the gospel with her, invited her to watch the, the live stream with her. They've been watching the live stream, and now this person is a Christian. And she wanted to reach out just to say, hey, I'm, just, I'm grateful for your ministry that this, is, this, this ministry brought the gospel and some of the initial just building blocks of discipleship to this person. Last night, I talked to the grandfather of a college student, and this college student had, had grown up with a background that didn't have any Christian background, but the grandpa was a Christian. He'd been praying for this, this college student since they were very, very little, that they would come to know Jesus. And this college student has come to Mercy House and, and over, over the last few months has been reading the Gospel of John, exploring the Christian faith. And this grandfather wanted to let me know, so glad that this church is here and it's a place where my grandson can hear the Gospel. We saw eight baptized last year in 2020 during a pandemic, right? Um, winter small groups, we just uh, wrapped up most of those. Um, and as my group was all about politics and the faith and how do you engage with politics in a gospel-centered way, and it was really rich. And partly it was rich is because half the people in the class are not from the U.S., <laughs> And we're able to just talk about the gospel and talk about government and talk about politics from this like multinational kind of, of, of perspective. And then there's just the normal stuff, right? That the gospel's been preached here for 21 and a half years, week in, week out, at the, the East Gate of the University of Massachusetts, just a few blocks down from Amherst College and just a few miles away from 
Smith College, Mount Holyoke College, Hampshire College, and then all these communities, places that are not reached. Many people do not know the gospel. And God has funded this place such that we've been able to preach that gospel week in and week out. Campus ministry, Megan and V. Uh, spend a lot of their time with campus ministry. Smith College, Mount Holyoke College right now really don't even uh, have uh, hardly any, if, if any, I don't think they have any really paid campus ministry people right now, except for Megan Berry. She's the only paid campus ministry person that's on the campuses of Smith College and Mount Holyoke College. The work that Tommy does with discipleship, uh, he's rolling out disciple-making tracks this morning and continuing the discipleship groups. Many people have grown in those groups and have led other groups and been disciples who make disciples. Member care through family groups that are led mostly through by elders, um, but also just member care that happens organically, and Lois does a lot of that, and many others uh, who are caring for the members. And then just the sentness of this place. We're sending out people constantly who have come mostly for university work, college work, and then go to other nations, go to other states, and are serving in churches uh, all over um, that have left this place. Places like Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Zurich, and Dubai, and the Czech Republic. And again, that, that this church has been funded to, to preach the gospel in a very, very unreached place. Among, for the most part, an unreached generation, uh, is, it's just miraculous. And so I don't want us to miss that, that, that God is, yes, funding ministry here, but, but what is happening? You know, what is that ministry that's happening, and who is it happening among? It's, it's hard to get your arms around all that God is doing in this place. So I just want to uh, give God some glory <laughs> this morning for what He's accomplishing in this ministry. Now, I hope you grabbed one of these scripture journals uh, for this uh, sermon series to take notes in your own personal study, but also to take notes during sermons. I think it's really helpful to have it in one spot there for purchase back there. If you want to just sneak back there, grab one, use it, pay later, I don't care. Um, but but I, really, I think these, these are really helpful to kind of keep your notes in one place. So feel free. The pastor has just given you permission to jump out of your chair and to go grab one if you want one. All right, Book of Romans, let's get into it. Um, this book is such a thorough treatment of the gospel. Just, just, it's the most thorough, right? If you want to know the theology of the gospel, read Romans. And it's, it is, um, we're going to go, it's going to be a deep dive. I mean, it's, it's going to tell us why humans need the gospel. It's going to tell what the, what the gospel even is. Like, how, how does God save us from the predicament that we find ourselves in through this quote-unquote gospel. And then what are the implications of that gospel for the individual, for the church, for the world? All this is in the book of Romans and more. Now, before we get into all of that, I want us to remember that all the books in the New Testament are letters. They're letters written by a particular Jesus follower who is writing to a particular group of people, a particular church. And um, this is no different. So Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul grew up uh, a Jew, but not just Jewish. He was a very powerful religious leader. And he was so zealous about the Jewish religion that he was even persecuting 
Christians. He was supervising the literal uh, martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts. But in a spectacular way, which you can go back to the book of Acts and, and read about Paul's conversion, Paul is brought to faith in Christ. And when he discovers this, this good news, this gospel, he immediately becomes an evangelist for that gospel. And so, this is one of the letters that he writes as an evangelist for the gospel. And he writes it to the church in Rome in the first century. Um, it seems to be a network of house churches. We know that when we look at the very last chapter of Romans, which is probably the chapter you never get to. Like it's the, it's the, the other greetings. It's an interesting book. It has a greeting at the front. It has a greeting at the end. And so when you look at the greetings, like in the last chapter of Romans, like Romans 16, uh, verses 3 through 5, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risks their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. And then he says this, greet also the church in their house, right? So... Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila evidently have a house church. They have a church in their house. A few verses later, verses 14, 15, has this whole list of names to greet that I'm not even going to try to read because it's too hard and Patrick did a great job. But then he says, and the brothers who are with them. And then in verse 15, all the saints who are with them. These also seem to be posses of Christians that are gathering in the city of Rome. And so we have this group of Christians that are gathering in smallish house churches who also have a comprehensive kind of identity as the church of Rome. And there's division. There's division in these little churches. Um, there's division between non-Jewish and Jewish people in these, uh, in these churches. We know that from places like Romans 14. Uh, Romans 14, verse 1, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to, not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So it's describing the situation where Jews who were a minority in Rome are wanting to continue to eat kosher and celebrate Jewish festivals, and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, are disdaining them. They're making fun of them. They're rejecting them uh, because they want to keep these uh, traditions. And so there's some major cultural, religious, ethnic, even national divisions that are occurring in the churches in Rome. And part of it's driven by the, the larger culture. Because what we also know is that there was a time in which the, the, the city of Rome kicked out all the Jews. And then there was a time when they let them all back. And when they let them all back, they were marginalized. They were considered uh, less than everyone else. 
And so that kind of attitude was leaking into the church, and they were despising those Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And so there's division in the church on, on a, on a, for a lot of reasons, and I think this is good for us to see because we tend to romanticize the church of the first century. A lot of times, churches like, we're just getting back to the Bible. We're just getting back to the first century. We just, we just want to be like the Church of Acts. We just want to... Well, they were a mess too. They were struggling too. They, in, in a lot of ways, they were struggling more because they were still working out a lot of theological things that we, we have a whole you know, 2,000 years of history that have worked out a lot of theology. So Paul really has his work cut out for him. He's got these divided Christians in this very influential and important city. He's got to come up with something that is going to bring unity among those Christians. And at this time of the writing of the letter, he can't go there himself. So he can't use this kind of personal you know, magnetism to get them all in a room and get them unified. So he's got to write a letter to bring unity. And so what is he going to rally them around? You know, there's a lot of things that people use to try to rally people into unity. I mean, we're hearing a lot of it right now, the, the whole like, national kind, kind of, of, of uh, communication right now. We're all Americans. <laughs> we, can, we can unify. Right? You could use some kind of uh, nationalist kind of, kind of conversation or, or, or patriotic. Uh, you, you, you could also, you know, he, he could maybe try something cultural and say, we have this cultural similarities or or something ethnic, or, or, or something racial. Like, there's got to be something he can, he can tap into that, that would rally these Christians and get them to unify. And he wants them to unify really badly. I mean, you, you go back, if you go back to Romans 16, you, you can see him saying, so-and-so greet so-and-so for me. <laughs> It would be like if, if uh, you know, if, if Xavier and Seth were, on, you know, on uh, bad, bad terms, or, or Andrew and Patrick were on bad terms, and I'm like saying, uh, you know, Andrew, greet Patrick for me. I mean, he even, even says, greet them with a holy kiss in 1616, which, which would be, you know, more appropriate in their culture, I know, but still, he's pushing it, Right? All y'all that are divided, greet each other with a holy kiss. How is he going to do this? How is he going to get them to kiss? He needs something powerful. Something very powerful. It's going to have to be something more than a kinship or an ethnicity, right? It's going to be more than you're all Kuwaitis or you're all Canadians, it's got to be more than, 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 than some kind of a, 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 oh, I'm sorry, ethnicity, Arab and uh, Irish, but more than a nationalism, right, Kuwaiti or Canadian, some kind of cultural similarities. It's got to be more than that, clothes or food or what you like for recreation or entertainment or even language. It's got to be more than even common religious practice, he can't just say to them, you know, you guys like the same songs and you like the same preaching style and you like the overall same worship vibe. Like, wouldn't that unify? No. That, that will not work. Those things are not powerful. Enough doesn't mean those things don't matter. But, but, it, but it is 
something more powerful that's needed. That, there's only one thing, right? There's only one thing that's going to bring the very divided, very diverse Christians of Rome together. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. This is the only thing powerful enough to do that. It's the only thing powerful enough to bring us together is the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, we'll be spending a whole lot of time over the next weeks discussing just that, but the word itself, translated from the Greek word euangelion, means good news. Good news. It's a, it's a term they would have been very familiar with. Uh, they, they, they would have heard it from Roman emperors that were taking power and declaring the good news of Caesar Augustus' rule and reign. And they would have heard that. So this, this term would have been very provocative, even a little political, or a lot political. And what happened was Jesus and later his followers co-opted this term and said, no, we, we get a new king in town, bringing a, a new politics in town. And it's, a, it's of cosmic proportions. There is good news. There is good news. King Jesus is here. And so they use this word, this gospel word, to communicate this new kingdom coming. And Paul just bleeds gospel. I mean, you prick this guy, he just bleeds gospel. And so in his greeting, it's got gospel all over it. It's like a gospel greeting, right? And so what we see here, he tells us where the gospel comes from, some of what the gospel does. Those are the two main points of the sermon. Where does it come from? What does it do? And then, of course, we'll consider how we should respond to these truths. So where does it come from? Look at Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lot in there, and I think I'm tempted when I'm, I'm reading Scripture, I, I'm tempted just to kind of gloss over that, the greeting part. Like, it's just like, wah, 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 and then let's get on with the, with, with the thesis statement that'll be next week. But really, this greeting is, is very important, and this little section here tells us where the gospel comes from. Where the gospel comes from, comes from God the Father, comes from the Scriptures, it comes from God the Son, it comes from God the Spirit. All those things are mentioned in that little passage I just read. comes from God the Father. He says that the gospel is the gospel of God. Now, how do I know that when he says the gospel of God, he means God the Father? Is because in uh, verse 3, he says, which he promised concerning his Son. He's talking about the God, right? The God that he mentioned earlier. He's talking about uh, God the Father. And so, uh, the, God the Father... He's initiating whatever it is that's in this good news, in this gospel. That's a similar way of speaking like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Obviously, when, when John 3.16 uses God, he's talking about God the Father sending the Son. Same thing here. Paul's talking about God. He's talking about the Father who is sending the Son. The gospel comes from God. The gospel comes from God. The gospel doesn't come from a family or a nation or a culture uh, it doesn't even come from a religion. It comes from God. It comes from God. It's the gospel of God. 
You say, okay, well, that's cute. How do we even know about it? Well, God has chosen to use the Scriptures to reveal it. So it's the second place the gospel comes from. It comes from the Holy Scriptures. Uh, He says that the, the, the gospel came to us, quote, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God spoke through prophets, but prophets also wrote those things down. And those things that they wrote down became sacred Scripture. And this is how we know what the gospel is. We, we read it in the Bible. I was sitting down with uh, someone a few weeks ago, and they were like, I don't know what Christianity is. I said, would you like me to give you a quick overview? They're like, yeah, let's do it. And so I spent about 15 minutes and just kind of going over what is this whole gospel thing. And I get to the end of it, and I'm like, does that make sense? They're like, yes. I'm like, okay, you ready to trust Christ for, for salvation, to be forgiven of your sins? They're like, no, but I'm interested. What do I do? I said, well, let's read the Gospel of John together. And so we've been reading the Gospel of John together and just talking about it. And, and, and the Gospel of God is being revealed to this person. And, I, you know, I've seen this so many times, so many times, where, where folks that are, are seeking and are like, I'm not there yet, what do I do? I'm like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then as they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they encounter God through his scriptures. And so this is how God reveals the gospel that is the gospel of God. He reveals it through the scriptures. Now, the gospel also comes from Jesus Christ our Lord, is the terms uh, that, that, that uh, Paul uses. So verse 3, he says that this whole gospel thing is concerning his, as in God the Father, his son, right? And that his son is descended from David according to the flesh. So look at what he's doing there. He's saying the divine Son of God is also a human, and that that human is in the line of King David, which is the line that he has to be in to be the Messiah that was promised by those prophets. So there's so much that he's, he's throwing at you as you read this, and he sums this up in this like three names for Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus means Savior. Christ means King or Messiah. And Lord is Lord. It's God. And so he's saying the divine Son of God is our Savior and our King. Right? And so this is that we would have no gospel if it was not for God the Son, who is both God and human and is in the line of David as the messianic king. And you say, okay, that sounds good. I mean, you religious people, you, you make all these big claims, and you got your holy book, and all. Like, how, you can, I want to see some proof. I want to see some proof that there's some divine human savior king. And Paul gives it in here. Here's the proof, verse 5. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the Christian mic drop. Paul likes to drop it a lot. He's like, this is the proof. The proof is that He rose from the dead, that Jesus is who He said He is, that what He did on the cross is what He said the cross is going to do. He proves it. 
He vindicates himself, he'll say in Romans, by the resurrection of, from the dead. Now, we hear Paul say this in places like 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, a little synopsis of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. You see Paul doing this, where he's like, here's the proof. The proof is in the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, and those witnesses, many of them are still alive. So go ask them yourself. This is the proof. This is the proof of who Jesus is and what he's done. And as if that wasn't enough to declare Jesus as the divine Son of God, he says that this gospel also comes from God the Holy Spirit. It says he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Spirit of holiness. That's just another way to say Holy Spirit. Right? He's just, you know, he's creative. He's got to do some things, change it up a little bit. Instead of saying Holy Spirit, he says Spirit of holiness. So this gospel is really amazing. I mean, think about it. the whole triune God is involved in this gospel. It's, it's initiated by God the Father. It's accomplished by God the Son. And it is declared by God the Spirit. This is uh, such a helpful corrective, I think, for uh, especially American Christians, but, but just really human beings in general. Is we immediately try to take everything and center it on ourselves, including the gospel. We, we love just, a, just like a human-centered way of talking about the gospel. And part of this was, uh, you know, at, at its peak... Uh, in what was known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And this was like 80s, 90s. It was kind of trickling off as I was coming here to, to start Mercy House. But, but the idea was you need to figure out what the felt needs are of people, and then you need to tell them that the gospel meets their felt need. So if they have an unhappy marriage, you do a sermon series on marriage, and you say, the gospel will fix your marriage, and you'll be happy. Or if, if they're struggling with, with raising kids and you, you, you say, okay, you do, I'm going to do a sermon series on raising kids. And then you say, the gospel will fix your kids and send them to Harvard, you know? And then, or, or you get money problems. You're, you're like, okay, I'm going to do a whole series on money. I'm gonna, the gospel will fix your finances, right? And, and it was all centered on the human being. Now, it doesn't mean the gospel doesn't apply to marriage and kids and finances. It certainly does, but ultimately the gospel is from God and it's for God. It's from God and it's for God. Just like everything else on planet earth. I mean, think about it. He's the creator, the sustainer of all things. He's the one who accomplished the salvation of, of sinners like you and me. It's, it's centered in Him. Doesn't mean it's not also good for us and good for marriages and kids and all those things. Absolutely. But, it, but it's not centered on us. It's centered on God. And this is what Paul wants us to see in, the, in his greeting here, is that the whole triune God is, is involved in this, initiated by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and declared by God the Spirit. So this amazing good news 
that is centered in the triune God. What does it do? What does it do? It's so good. It must do something. It does. It does. Look at Romans 1, 5 through 7. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel creates, at least from from this text, mission, obedience, saints, and siblings. Mission, obedience, saints, and siblings. Paul says that they have received grace and apostleship. Now, we know about grace, right? Grace is like really awesome free stuff that I don't deserve. That's what grace is. The most amazing free thing you could, you could ever imagine that, that I don't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. And, and the whole Christian life, it's all grace. We're saved by grace, sustained by grace. We'll be sustained by grace throughout all eternity. It really is all grace. And, and Paul will spend many, many verses explaining that. So I'm not going to go too far down that road. I'll leave that grace conversation for future sermons. But I want you to also notice that he says, we received grace and apostleship. He couples apostleship with grace. And uh, apostleship, basically, an apostle, it it, it means sent one. Sent one. A a missionary, you know, you could say. And so I think it's interesting that he couples grace and being sent. Um, now, Paul is certainly a, an apostle in a special category. He's definitely a special category. Uh, he's officially sanctioned by Jesus to accurately transmit the truth tenets of the gospel. No doubt. Right? So he's a special sanctioning. John Stott says this, that Paul is an apostle. It was Paul's responsibility to receive, formulate, defend, maintain, and proclaim the gospel. So he does have a unique job. But he's also teaching the Romans that if they've received this gift of grace in the gospel, they're on mission. They're sent ones too. They may not be officially sanctioned apostles that are uh, proclaiming the, the truth tenets of the gospel for all time, but they are on mission. And so one of the ways you know someone is a genuine believer is, is, is they have an unction to get the gospel to some other people. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with that. Doesn't mean that sometimes it's hard. Doesn't mean you sometimes lack motivation. But, but, it, but in general, there's an unction in you because that news is so good. Why wouldn't you share it? This is probably why I, lo- I love hanging out with brand new baby believers. They're, they're, they're like, I got to share this. This is so good. I just want to th- share it with someone else. And so Paul couples this idea of, of grace with this idea of being sent. So one of the things that the gospel creates is uh, it creates mission. Uh, he says that it's for the sake of his name. That's, gospel, that's God-centered. But then he says, among all the nations. And so he has this, this missionary kind of impulse to get the good news to all the nations. We believe that too, right? We believe that. Why do we believe it? Because it's in the Scripture. We say here we're going to be a gospel-centered family on mission, 
Why do we say that? Because we believe the gospel creates a family that has an unction to be on mission to make disciples, not just here, but throughout the world, among the nations. The gospel creates mission. It also creates obedience. You check that out. Paul is seeking, uh, he says, to bring about the obedience of faith. Again, he's, he's coupling this idea of, of genuine saving faith with obedience. He's, he's saying if you have genuine faith, you will obey. God will grow you in obedience. He knows that when he uh, talks about grace, that there's a, a danger that people would say, oh, that's a license to sin. And from the very beginning of the book, he's trying to make sure, no, 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 no. Actually, it's the opposite. That grace is the fuel of the utmost holiness in the life of the Christian. Again, he'll talk a lot about that in uh, chapters 6 through 8, so I'm not going to talk down that road anymore. The gospel creates mission, creates obedience. It creates saints. Did you catch that? He says in verse 6, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God lets them know that they are saints. They are hagios, means holy ones. Anyone who has exercised saving faith in the grace of the gospel, they are a saint. They are a holy one. Saints are not like super Christians. They're, they're, they're not like they, they did a really awesome job all their Christian life, and now they're you know, graduating cum laude. That, that, that is not a saint. You're a saint from the moment that you become a Christian. You've been made holy by grace through faith. And so this gospel produces, creates saints. And so he's, he's calling them this very high and holy kind of name, knowing that it's by grace. The sainthood is amazing. I mean, look at it. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're loved by God the Father. You have peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the new identity that's, that's created by the gospel in a convert. So, the gospel creates mission, obedience, saints, creates siblings, creates siblings. And there's a lot in this 8 through uh, 14, 8 through 13, but the, the, the thread that I could see in there is that he, the gospel creates siblings. So he says first in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may mutually encourage, be encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You can just hear the longing. I mean, he even says that he longs to be with these Christians in Rome. He says he's, he never ceases praying for them. Um, he's, he says that 
on the top of his list of prayer requests is that he would be able to see them. He said, God, please, please let me see these Roman Christians. Uh, and, and, and he envisions this mutually building one another up. It's not like the big bad Apostle Paul coming into town to help you guys out. He's like, no, I've got things that I can give you. You have things that you can give me. And I just, I just want to do family with you. I, I just want to be brothers. He even calls them brothers. Uh, they are siblings. He considers them family. Paul's never met them. Paul's never met them. He's, only, he's heard about them from others who have, have done church planting and evangelism there, but he's never met them before. Why, why is he longing to see them and praying for them? Because the gospel creates family. <laughs> it creates sibling relationships. And so even though God, uh, Paul hasn't seen them, hasn't, hasn't even met them, um, he desires to be in fellowship with them. So this gospel, it creates mission and obedience and saints and siblings. That's a powerful gospel. That's a powerful gospel. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Um, so this most powerful gospel, right, comes from God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, revealed to us in the Scriptures, creating mission and, and, and obedience and saints and, and siblings. And so you, you, you hear that and, and you say, well, what, what am I to do? How am I supposed to respond to that? And so uh, for, for some of you, you've never placed your faith in the gospel. And I want to encourage you to do that today. If you have a sense of, of what the message is in, in the gospel, that, that Christ has died for your sins and that by placing your faith in what He did for you, you can be forgiven, reconciled to God and brought into this relationship with Him and fellow believers in the church. If you understand that and you're like, I'm ready, then do that today. Reach out to Him in prayer with faith and ask Him to forgive you and bring you into that relationship. If you've done that this morning, I, I want to encourage you to reach out and tell somebody. You can do that personally or you can do that online, but just let us know that you've made that step of faith in the gospel. But for some of you, you may be just getting started. You're just getting started. And so I want to encourage you to commit to be a part of this study, these sermons on Romans every week to come and to listen and to get one of those scripture journals and take notes and think about what you're hearing and hopefully even talk to someone else about what your reflections are. If, if you ever wanted to really know, like a thorough understanding of, quote, the gospel, this, this is the place to come, is Romans, especially 1 through 8. What is this thing? And so if, if you're exploring, if you're seeking, I would encourage you uh, to, to say, Come every week this, this semester during this series and explore the truths of the gospel. But what if you're, a, you're already a Christian? You, you know what the gospel is. You've responded in faith. I want you to take a deeper dive. I want you to take a deeper dive. Man, the gospel is a, 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 such a splendid thing. It has so many facets. There's so many things about it. You come to it again and again and again and again and again in the Scriptures, and you just see more and more of the beauty and the power of the gospel. And so, so come to this study of Romans and these, this preaching on Romans with that kind of, of anticipation that you're, you're going to see new things. You're going to dive deeper into 
the beauty and the power of the gospel. But also to continue that living out the gospel and learning what it is in discipleship groups. And if you've done discipleship groups, then try some of these disciple-making tracks to, to keep pressing in. On this side of heaven, you're never going to not need more gospel. I don't know if you noted notice that Paul's like, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, Romans. He's not saying, I don't think you're saved and I need to you know, preach some good gospel so I can get you saved. No, he's saying, you need gospel just like I need gospel. I need to hear this preached again and again and again and again. And so um, just dive in, dive in deeper in the gospel. So let's pray. Let's take a minute just to, to, to pray and to respond. God, we are so grateful for this gospel of God that you have initiated the giving of this gospel. You, you have accomplished it on the, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. You are declaring it and applying it in the power of the Spirit. And you're revealing all that to us through your holy scriptures. And so I, I pray that over, over these next weeks together, on, on Sunday mornings and in personal study, Lord, that, that we, would, we, would, we would get a, a greater glimpse of the beauty and the power and the glory of your gospel, of your good news. And I pray that you would do that both uh, remotely with those that are worshiping at home, but also those in person. God, as, as we reflect on this, uh, God, help us to see it with uh, spiritual eyes that understand it in an even deeper way than we ever have before. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.